Welcome to 239 Uncensored. Everything Southwest Florida and beyond with your host, Tim Jurad. This podcast covers it all. Real talk on issues from real estate to real crime. Join the discussion on hot topics to politics. Don't get left behind. Be in the know about everything Southwest Florida and beyond. Welcome, welcome, welcome to 39 Uncensored, everything Southwest Florida and beyond. And we have an outstanding episode, a great guest, a good friend of mine, retired Captain Tom Storr. Tom Storr, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you. And I say retired Captain now. I just want to give you a little a little bit of background on Tom Storr. He's probably been through every rank all the way up to the undersheriff at the sheriff's office. Retired uh, last year, a little bit. Last December. How last long year. do you have in law enforcement? Oh. Well, I started with the Highway Patrol Reserve Force in 1970, but I came full-time with a sheriff's office in uh, 1972. So I was with the sheriff's office almost 50 years. Now, I call your kind of sheriff's office. Now, how big was the sheriff's office when you first started? I think we had maybe 60 of us, inclu- <laughs> including the secretaries. Uh, I can tell you on the, on the west side of Collier, North Naples, Golden Gate, and East Naples, there was only one car per du- per district back then and one supervisor. So there's four of us on a shift. And a lot of times, if we had somebody in sick, there was only two of you. And back in the 70s, I have worked this whole county by myself on the midnight shift was the only car out. Every, Unbelievable. Every, every substation. 2,025 square miles it's like yeah. it's crazy it's huge it's crazy it's, it's huge now the reason why for obvious reasons with your experience we're, we're gonna we're gonna have you back on again i know for a fact but one of the reasons people people often ask me hey listen i heard that collier county was like big time drug smuggling everglades city all those stories all the things that have come up that's why we want to bring you, because you were in the middle of it. You I'm were right. in the heart about it. We'll talk yeah. a little bit about it. Now, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, we have a video. It's going to be on YouTube. Uh, just a short clip, and we got several pictures, so make sure you, you go on there. But I want to run this little video real quick before we get started. It's kind of cool. Tim, from a two-year undercover investigation that led to 149 earlier arrests and the seizure of nearly a half million pounds of marijuana. We don't have shoot 'em ups over drugs or gangland killings or, or anything like that. Uh, like I said, they're, they're breaking the law, but they're not violent criminals. These are your next-door neighbors. People you were born and raised with, and uh, they're just uh, typical American people. I think that some of the townspeople felt that it was unfair, but I can tell you that a number of other people felt that it was long overdue and needed to be corrected because the man had gone into an illegal commodity and needed to be fixed. If they would have left it alone and left it small, they would have eventually got busted, but not the way that they did. Um, Because a lot of them actually didn't get busted. They got told on. Or, or narked out or ratted on or stitched on. We have many names for it. <laughs> wow. Does that video clip bring back some good memories? Oh, or, yeah. When I say yeah. good, I mean, it was a yeah. tough but, time to work in. Yeah, there, there was a lot of activity. I mean, we worked nonstop for several, several years uh, on the situation. Now, let's go back. The drug smuggling started when? I will tell you, uh, in, in one of the pictures that, that I gave you, uh, it, it shows a picture. It's a black and white picture of several bales of marijuana outside of the old sheriff's office. Yes, uh, that's me on the left. The interesting thing is the gentleman in the white shirt and tie at the time 
that was Captain Chuck Whitten. He was ahead of CID. The uniformed officer on the right is Russ Davis. He was a member of the agency. That started our smuggling. Now, those bales that you saw, they were, uh, they were retrieved from the Naples airport. We had a, back then it was customs. City of Naples airport, not City Everglades. City, City of, of Naples, Naples wow. Airport. They dropped that load in two spots. They dropped it at the north end of the city of Naples airport. They dropped the other part of the load in a little uh, development off of Rattlesnake Hammock Road called Wing South. Yes. And we got half the load there and half the load off the airport. An interesting thing about it is I was, I was in uniform at the time. This is 1972. Okay, so let's get the date. Yeah, this is 1972. And I had a brand-new assistant state attorney who was involved with us on that, who became a circuit court judge up in Charlotte County. And he's now since retired, but he was in my car with me. We sat there probably all night. In, in part of the next day. We were not able to make any arrests uh, because of the smugglers at that time were out of Miami. We did seize the dope. And in my opinion, that started the ball rolling of, we started seeing the importation of, of bale marijuana into the Southwest coast of Florida. So when do we start seeing it to be like, hey, this is a problem. I, things are getting out of control. We knew Back then, Collier County was just vast areas, you know. How, how, when was it, yeah. when did it start to impact locals and things like that? Or? I'd say we, we really started seeing the, uh, the impact where we, we felt that we were overpowered with the manpower probably around 1975, 1976. Uh, air smuggling, it, it started out with air smuggling. Okay. Uh, because 70% of the Everglades is in Collier County. And the famous method, if you will, was, was two methods. They would either fly an airplane in and land off of the area of Everglades Boulevard south of I-75, now in those, those streets that take off of that. The other issue they would do is they would fly a large cargo plane in out over the Everglades, and they would literally fly low and slow and kick the bales out in a straight line. And then the violators would take swamp buggies and four-wheelers and go out and pick them up. I can't tell you how many nights we spent out in the Everglades picking up bale marijuana that had been dropped. Uh, all of this stuff came out of Miami, okay. the, the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. Uh, I even arrested a pilot that uh, was a Marine Corps a Vietnam pilot. Okay. And he got involved uh, with them. Uh, we arrested him. He literally flew an airplane into the Everglades, dropped the stuff out, and landed back at uh, in Miami Uh he was making a reasonable amount of salary, but someone, the, the violators, offered him $50,000 for 24 hours worth of work. And when they, wow. met, and they met with him. In 72, 74, 75? Yeah, th no, this was later. A little yeah, bit later. Late 70s, okay. 78, 79, okay. somewhere around there. Uh, they met with him in a restaurant in Miami, and he had never flown a DC-3 before. Uh, DC-3 is a cargo plane, uh, the old DC-3s that we used to, to run around. Yeah, I think we have a picture of one. We, of we have a picture of one, yeah. And, and you know, the military version of that was a C-47. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. There's, there's, there's a DC. Wow. That's a DC. Where's that plane at right there? That's off Everglades Boulevard. <laughs> and, and you see that? You see how narrow that street is? Yeah, that's they Everglades la Boulevard. They landed that you, plane on that street. Remember, if you're listening to this on the podcast, make sure make to go to the Facebook you, page or YouTube and see this, this plane. It's incredible. Yeah. And here was another trick. The violators would land these airplanes, and they just walk off and leave them. They get the dope, 
there was so much money in importation of bale marijuana back in those days, they'd just leave it. Or they'd crash it. Uh, several photographs, I've got a crashed airplanes off Everglades Boulevard uh, and all that. So in the late 70s and up into the early 80s, we, we got so good at in, intercepting those airplanes. We worked, back in those days, it was DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, and U.S. Customs Air Support out of Homestead Air Force Base. Okay. Uh, what, what the violators didn't know is at that time, I had a customs radio in my car, and, and I could call Customs Miami Sector. And, and, and they would call me. And if they had an airplane inbound, a lot of times they would follow them in with their air assets, either a Black Hawk helicopter or a Citation jet or something like that. And they would follow them in. And I'd be, I could talk to the aircraft as they were coming in. So we got, we got good at that. So during the 80s, we actually posed as offloaders to direct airplanes into Everglades Boulevard area. Actually, and... In uh, north on DeSoto Boulevard, we, we actually took planes off. So where DeSoto sits right now, yeah, in e the intersection of Golden Gate Boulevard and DeSoto, right. is, is that yeah. was that the area yeah. these planes yeah. were landing? Yeah, northwest of that. <laughs> northwest, yeah. Oh, of that. northwest of that. And Unbelievable. If you, if you go north of Orwell Grade off DeSoto, you've got some of those roads that go back yeah. In there. Yeah, we had we've had planes. We we directed planes in there. Most of our activity was south of the alley off Everglades Boulevard. Yeah, right. And south blocks. South blocks. Yeah. What's how many bales would these planes drop? Well, for an example, the DC, the DC three that, that I showed you there, probably that that aircraft would hold uh, maxed out of you know five to seven thousand pounds. We did take off, and, and I do have a, a, a case that I worked with, which was a DC six. That was a huge four engine aircraft. They landed in the Everglades north of Monroe Station. And just left it. We estimated that load was about fifteen thousand pounds. Wow! Now where where we know it kind of come over from Miami, but where did it originate? Columbia or Columbia. South? Yeah, yeah South America. Columbia. Yeah, everything, Columbia. everything was out of Cartagena, Colombia that we were dealing with. Okay. Uh, now would it come straight from Cartagena, or and then drop, or would it come to Miami, settle there, and then come over, straight, or straight in, straight they, in? But yeah. it would kind of be coordinated through Miami yeah. dealers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the most of the importator importers if you will, for Miami, uh, they would coordinate it. They had the Colombian connection. Uh, we actually got so good at it. We were talking to some of the uh, growers in South America on high-frequency radio. We had a high-frequency radio set up, and we could talk to them back and forth, and uh, it, we set up a couple of deals. Later on, during Operation Everglades, we switched to marine smuggling boats, Lots, right. of, lots of boats. We got so good at that that we, if we had a case going and we had a, we had an informant that was working with us and hooked us up with the uh, the smuggler who was out of Miami, we would take front money and we would rent a shrimp boat and then we would go down and we would meet the Colombian freighter off the coast of Mexico or Colombia, take the load on, bring the load back up. Now's the time to take care of our sponsors. This episode of the 239 Uncensored Podcast is proudly sponsored by Florida Pro Realty. If you are buying, selling, renting, or in need of property management, please give us a call or visit our website at www.floridaprorealty.com. Thank you to our sponsors. We're back. And offloaded off the southwest coast of Florida into the smaller boats, and then we would we would follow that all the way to Miami. Wow. And they because they knew all the the 10,000 islands they knew how to get in and now in learning a little bit about it there was the this federal and state park that came in right the federal federal park that yeah. came in yeah. and that 
took a lot of their their livelihood away. From, it did. That's what they said, and they they basically transformed or transitioned into this. They're like, hey, we got to we got to feed our family. Right. Yeah. And here's what happened with that. You know, the, the feds they shut down fishing in the park. Uh, a, a lot of commercial fishing was either controlled or shut down in into the park. So. You know, you, you take commercial fisherman, he's maybe making fifteen, nineteen thousand dollars a year, trying trying to make a living. And you get these guys from Miami, particularly Hispanics that would come over that would have the Colombian connection, and they can sit down with this commercial fisherman and say, Look, you've got a fishing boat. If you would go out one night and, and you'd bring in four or five thousand pounds, and there's a picture in there of one of the boats that we see with about four thousand pounds on. We'll pay you fifty thousand, sixty. Yeah, that's it right there. That's about five thousand pounds on that boat. Wow, uh, it's a twenty. I think that's a twenty-eight foot flat boat. They offer them fifty thousand dollars for one night's work, and what they would do is they would give them a down payment of say ten thousand dollars. So the fisherman takes the ten thousand cash. He doesn't have to worry about it. He runs the load, the load comes in, and then the trafficker would come back and say, well, you know, all the load didn't get through. I can't pay all that money, but I got another load working. Can you do that, and I'll, and I'll pay you again? And they give him some more money. So what they did is they reeled in these fishermen that using their boats, and, you know, I've, and I've t- interviewed some of them where they were owed several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and, the, and the traffickers knew that they could just keep going, and they give them a little bit each time, a little bit each time. Now, some of them did make big money. Mm-hmm. We had we had large cash seizures during Everglades City. Uh, once we made the arrest, they they're making fifteen to nineteen thousand. Trafficker comes in. Here's ten thousand dollars right now. I'll give you the rest as soon as the load gets through. Yeah, they're they're like working. They need that money. That's ten thousand dollars, especially right. back in those days. Yeah. And you know, for something that they in a whole year that they might make that same, the same numbers what they oh, yeah. in the whole year. So it's amazing. Yeah. And they, and they they really were the only ones, you know, I worked at Florida Marine patrol way back and Correct. I, I kind of knew the waters a little bit, yeah. but those guys are the ones that really knew the waters. Yeah. Yeah. They we knew all a, the ins and outs. Oh, they do. They, and they knew, you know, as you know, in that area, the Everglades city, 10,000 islands, Chukaluska area. If you don't know where you're going, you're going to hit an oyster bar. You're going to, you're going to tear the bottom out of your boat. And these guys were running full speed at night, no lights. And we had a Marine Patrol deputy that could run that same thing. He grew up on the water, and he could run those whole back channels, everything at night. I sometimes 30, 40 miles an hour with lights out, and he knew exactly where we were going. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they knew the area. It, it, was, it was the geographical knowledge of how to get in and how to get out. They knew the deep water areas where to hide boats. And the mangroves, as you know, the mangroves are so thick. You can hide a boat back in there and never see it right here. It yeah. was totally camouflaged. And once the load would come in, it would get put on trucks in Everglades City, and then yeah. it would be yeah. transported you know, to over to Miami, yeah. and then and from sometimes, there, distribution sometimes, yeah. sometimes they would piecemeal it. Right. And they'd be a couple thousand pounds at a time, uh, and, and they would you know, they would head over to Miami. They used a lot of vans that would do that. And we also were able to figure out the vans that they used uh, were unmarked vans, they had air shocks. They had all the windows darkened out. They had a bulkhead painted black between the seats and the back cargo portion of the van. And the van would never come back registered to them, to the driver. Right. And they would, they would transport the stuff from Everglades City to Miami. I actually got involved and stopped one of those vans with the uh, help of the highway patrol. And it had 28 bales in it. They sued us. And ultimately, they lost the lawsuit. 
Um, and they said we didn't have probable cause or any of that stuff, and it, and it went to the federal court, and it, the federal courts threw it out. Yes, yeah, no, uh, no, no. Now we know this is a, a big part of the history of Collier County. Yes, you know, just yes. the the fact behind it. Uh, how did it impact the sheriff's office and our you know relationships with the community? And I mean, there's just a lot of things. I, I was a little bit of a a part of it at the end when I went to teach Dare. At oh, Everglades, yeah. Everglades schools <laughs> as a deputy, and and the kids, the young kids, really didn't like deputies at the time because no. all the, we had put their family members. I go, I, I didn't have any part of it, but that's yeah. kind of yeah, interesting. No, we, we we were we were not really welcome in Everglades. <laughs> um, a percentage yeah. of people who got arrested, right? Tell me. Yeah, yeah, we arrested a lot of people. Um, I think, uh, well, majority of the fishermen, they were either involved or they knew about it and didn't say anything. Uh, you, you know, I understand the culture there. Uh, Everglades has kind of been that way. I, I think if you dig back in time, uh, there's a long history of smuggling uh, and importation. I, I'm told that at one time it, it could have been weapons, it could have been whiskey, it could have yes. been sugar, uh, stuff like that. I think there's a book out called Up for Grabs uh, that's published. Uh, I, I read a copy of it years ago. Uh, it, it's kind of, uh, I, I don't know, kind of like the, the mentality you have sometimes like in Key West that, you know, just leave us alone. Don't bother us. Yeah, well, we're we, down here. Leave us yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah. We, we weren't going to do that. Uh, you know, we had to do something. Uh, we estimated during during the time, we started Operation Everglades in 1981. Uh, and, and the reason we started that is we, we were just getting bombarded with importation cases. Uh, we didn't have the assets. There was only like three or four of us in the uh, unit. We were overpowered. We were getting called out all the time. So what we did is we appealed, and I remember going in 1981, I remember taking a trip to Miami DEA office with the then Sheriff Aubrey Rogers. And we met with the special agent in charge of DEA, and we laid out all of our history as to how bad it was over here on the west coast of Florida. So they, DEA said, all right, we're going to come over and we're going to do a 90-day intelligence gathering effort in the southwest coast of Florida. That 90 days turned into what's still the DEA task force in Fort Myers today. No kidding. Yeah, that's, wow. that was the nucleus, if you will. The task force, first of all, was based in Collier. When we did Operation Everglades, we had DEA, U.S. Customs, Florida Marine Patrol, IRS, IRS was a big help. Yeah, I can imagine. Everything's they, linked to that. Everything right? was linked to money. And, and they did a really, really good job of identifying how the money was tracked, uh, doing all that. We did work a little bit with the military. Uh, we even tested uh, anti-smuggling aircraft for the Australian government. Uh, and it was interesting. I, I was with Customs, and they brought a, an Australian airplane in. And they wanted to put it off the coast of Naples just to test to see what we could do. And lo and behold, we found floating bales off the coast, about 10 miles <laughs> off the coast. <laughs> Unknown to us. I mean, it was, and, and a lot of times, one or two bales would go overboard. They wouldn't even worry about it. It would just float up. And we used to catch, we would call them floaters. We used to get a lot of those from time to time when they had a big load coming in. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the, the nitty-gritty. Any Anything get really hairy and scary and, you know, yeah, I can dangerous. Tell, yeah, I can tell you one 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 situation, and this was this was in in the late '80s. We had information that a, a load of cocaine. Now we switched from probably around '85, maybe 
84, 85, we switched from bale marijuana into cocaine or a combination of both because the cocaine weighed less, was higher value, and you could get it in easier. So we had information that a load was coming in out of, uh, off of I-75 into a location uh, off of Turner River Road, which is a dirt road you know, out in eastern Collier County. So we knew that it, that it was coming in, so we set up on it. Well, that case, I don't know if you've, uh, there, there's a movie out with Tom Cruise in it uh, that portrays a pilot by the name of Barry Seal. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's a regular full, full screen movie. Full screen. He, uh, Tom Cruise plays Barry Seal. Okay. That load that we brought in, it was Coke. And we got the load. We also got in a shootout with the Colombians because they sent a hit squad oh, with them. That load was the load that precipitated Barry Seal to start cooperating with the U.S. government, DEA. He became an informant, but Barry Seal was working both sides of the fence. He was, he was doing some stuff for himself, and he was doing some, you know, something uh, for the government. I think the movie's called American Made, but I'm not sure about that. But that's the story of Barry Seal. That was his load. He was the pilot of the airplane that we took off. We didn't get the airplane. We got the material. Uh, most of the guys got away. Uh, we, we, we did get a shootout. We're not sure if we hit some of them or not, uh, but we did. We got their cars and we got the load. Wow. And, that's crazy. Uh, now, in your capacity working with the task force, right, and correct. working for the Collier County Sheriff's Office, correct. Give me an example of what a night would be just sitting waiting for these planes and the mosquitoes and oh, the just, Everglades. I, Wait, well, yeah, you, yeah. I, I mean, mean, you probably don't want to remember all that. <laughs> yeah. we, we would sit sometimes two, three, four days waiting on a load to come in 24-7. We'd have relief come in. We'd have bring in people from Miami, and, and the bugs were terrible. You, you tried to use bug spray with DEET. Uh, you'd bug screen, you know, throw a, 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 a net over your head. Uh, if you're spe- especially if you're out in the woods, it was it was pretty long sleeves, you know, and it was hot during the summer. See, the harvest season down there usually started in August. Okay. July, August is when the plant would get to that point of where they could harvest it, and then they would harvest it, dry it, and, and compress it and pack it. And that's the picture that you've got there of that one compressed bale. Yeah, the one, if you can bring that compressed bale up, it's kind of neat because you are telling me about yeah, there it the is. the. Trash compactors. We yeah, haven't had those in the United States for a while. I mean, no, I don't know if you got one, yeah, but no. it's kind of neat. Tell the story yeah, about that. Yeah, the, We're looking at a picture of a condensed bale. And again, go on Facebook, check it out. Check out the video on uh, YouTube as well. Yeah, the uh, the smuggler in Colombia loved trash compactors because they could put all the dried vegetable material in there and keep compacting it and compact it. And pretty soon you get that square uh, package. There would be two of those per bale. And then they would wrap it in brown paper, and then they would put that in burlap. Okay. Something like coffee beans would come in or or goods out of Columbia, you you would all say. And those bales probably, they would have two of those uh, packaged compartments, and they could weigh, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds. And if they got wet, they they weighed a lot more. Now, if if they floated and they were in the water for a while, a couple of guys said, hey, we took it and dried it out and sold it. Yes. It was not damaged in any way, really. Just no, it, it wasn't the same potency, right? Uh, you know, once it, and it, some of it, depending on how they dried it, some of it would have mildew in it. Uh, it would be pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. but they would grab it and try to sell it uh, at a reduced rate. Yeah. Now people are going to ask me and you when when you got those bales, did you have like a burn 
yes. uh, operation, that type of thing. That must have been crazy. Well, two, two things. Get up with. Yeah. Well, two, <laughs> Down with. two, two things. Um, if we were going to go to state court, we would get the load and say we got 20,000 pounds, which was a pretty average load back in those days. Uh, we would have to sample every bale, take it to the lab, and make sure that it tested as cannabis right. uh, in the lab. And once we did that, and once the case was over, uh, we would have to do a destruction order by the court. The court would allow us to do a destruction order. Then we would take it to an incinerator, one in Fort Myers, but they made us quit because we burnt the incinerator inside the incinerator out because it was so hot. <laughs> so then we had to take it to St. Petersburg, and we would burn the stuff there. Now, if we were going to federal case, we would have to sample, the, get all of the package stuff up, load it up into a huge truck, and take it to the warehouse in Miami, where they would they would process it and they would destruct it at the federal level. And I don't know how they destructed right. their stuff, but you had to get a destruction order from the court to get rid of it. And it's some some of it, and sometimes we would burn it. Here, we what happened was we used the dump. We would we would dig a huge hole in the dump. Uh, in the ground, and then we would layer, we would put marijuana, wood, diesel fuel, marijuana, wood, diesel fuel, and then we would light it, and we would try to burn it all out. Well, what would happen is sometimes we wouldn't get it all burnt, and these guys that were rather creative, they would go back out and dig the hole up, and they would try <laughs> to salvage the pot that had uh, the diesel fuel burnt. on it, and it, it became known on the street as diesel pot. No kidding. And Lord knows what it did to the interior lining of your lugs when you smoke pot with diesel fuel soaked on it. But yeah. it was sold as diesel pot. Yeah. Uh, so we had to quit that. That's when we started using the incinerator. Yeah, wouldn't work. A little bit about you and law enforcement. So you made, how many arrests did you guys, I mean, out of the total population of Everglades City, how many people do you I would think estimate, went to prison? I, I would estimate or at got that arrested? time, oh, yeah, probably over 100 yeah. We, we probably arrested more than that. In, in Mostly the males down there, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was mo yeah. it was based on the commercial fishermen right. and the people that got involved in it. I, I think it was at that time probably well known in Everglades City of what was going on, and they estimated a large amount. DEA estimated a large amount of the imported marijuana came in through the southwest coast of Florida, and I'm talking all the way from uh, from Marathon in the Keys all the way up to Sarasota. I mean, we took loads off up in Charlotte County. We took loads off in Lee County. And, and most of it that we took off here in, in Collier or off the... So during your time in law enforcement, I'm sure you have run into some of these people uh, yeah. that you have had dealt with. Because the, the feeling I get for the most part is like, hey, law enforcement's got a job. We got a job. Oh, yeah. Do you ever, do you ever run into anybody I, yeah, that I read talks into, about I it? I ran into some people. That, that I've arrested, and uh, th they've been cordial. I mean, they knew we had a job to do, and they had a job to do. They got caught, and and we were the ones. Uh, and and I always told people when we arrested them, if you want to consider yourself a gentleman, I'll treat you like a gentleman. If you don't, then we'll have to use whatever necessary tools that we have to accommodate you. But Number one, you're going to jail. Number two, I'll try to answer any question that you have, but please be a gentleman. I'll be a gentleman. And, and 
Most of them did. I, I've had guys uh, turn me in through attorneys. Uh, we had an attorney here in town that, that turned a group in, turned five of them in at one time, and they would only turn them in to me, you know, because he knew I would treat them with respect, but they were still going to jail. Right, I got And then, you. you know, they'll sort it out in court when they go to court. Yeah, and that runs, I run into that a lot over the years. I've arrested a lot of people, gang members yep, uh, mostly, sure. um, yeah. and I run into them to this day, and, you know, they're like, hey, Deputy G, you know, how's it going? You know, you changed my life or, you know, I got kids now. I'm out of the gang world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and, yeah. and I could say over the years, I, you know, totally have been respectful of everybody. And and again, I, I put it in the control of the, you know, of the subject who that I'm arresting. You know, you, hey, yeah. let's, you got a job. I got a job. Let's get through that. But but yours, I know that even to this day, Everglades City and the whole community is, is kind of it's kind of like a folk story it is. that is true yeah, yeah <laughs> it is true yeah, yeah. so it's There's, it's pretty they're pretty and looking at it, they're pretty proud of the you know of the i don't want, want to use the word proud but their their heritage and how they oh yeah how they were tough and they yeah. survived and, and lived through it in my opinion and i'm no uh you know sociologist or anything but i i think it's ingrained in their culture it's been done for so many years and they just think you know it's okay to do that uh, yeah. You know, I've had discussions with guys that I arrested that got mad at me and said we had no business being there. And I said, well, you know, we are here. This is this is going to happen. So let's get, like you said, let's get through it, and uh, you know, we'll go from there. One of the things, too, is, and I was listening and talking to some people, that the sentencing was different. Like some, some people really locked in, didn't tell anybody, narc on anybody, snitch on anybody. They got a little bit harder sentencing. Yeah. The people who kind of flipped, enrolled and helped out they yep. got some reduced sentence yeah in a, in a way that's work is we if we had a cooperating individual that we'd arrested uh you know he had a defense attorney and that defense attorney and in, in the at, at that time everything we did during operation everglades was federal we would get the u.s attorney's office out of miami involved with their defense attorney and we would strike up what was called a cooperative agreement document in other words their defendant would do A, B, C, and D and cooperate with us. And once they locked in on that, and then once we would debrief that person, depending on what they did, we would keep, a, you know, obviously a great uh, chronology of what that individual did. At the time of sentencing, we would present that material to the federal U.S. District Court judge in Miami. And then it would be up to the court to determine, you know, does a guy get 10 years? Does he get 15 years? Does he, does he get probation? Uh, does he get two years? It was up to the judge, but we had to articulate a well-founded basis for consideration on behalf of the judge as to how they sentenced that individual. And that, that's kind of how that worked. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And talking to some of the guys that, that have been through it, the federal system at the time, for some of them was like, yeah, that was pretty, pretty, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't, you know, nothing's obviously nice when you're locked up and you're in your liberties are taken away but they yeah. said that the federal some of some of them did you know a year some of them did three years some of them did seven years in, in my opinion some of those federal correction facilities are like a country club that's what that's what some of them say you know we went we we, I, we had to go to debrief an individual into miami corrections federal and there was myself my dea partner and an assistant u.s attorney and we wanted to talk to this individual who, who by the way the person that we talked to 
uh, he ran the largest load in Everglades City that we ever took, 52 tons. Wow. 102,000 <laughs> 102, pounds. So how many bales would that be? 1,700. 1,700 bales. 1,700 wow. bales in one guy. And, wow. he, and he had a sixth grade education, lived over on the wow. east coast of Florida. He was in jail. He wanted to talk to us. So we went over and we checked into the uh, Correctional Institute. And they, they had counselors that were in charge of these guys. <laughs> so we got a, got a hold of his counselor and said, you know, we need to talk to so-and-so. And he said, well, he's, he's, he's having free time right now. He can't come talk to any U.S. attorney. He said, you got 10 minutes to get that person here. Office you, free time. Or, or, <laughs> or you and I are going to have a problem, pal. So we came in. And, and the guy did talk to us. And it's interesting. All he ever wanted, and we had to clear it through the, the facility, all he kept asking for was, could you bring me a couple pouches of red man chewing tobacco? That's what he wanted. No problem. No problem. We're happy. No, we're happy, we're happy to happy. work that out. Yeah. Now, the bad, the bad news is he started running loads while he was in jail, so oh. he got arrested again. <laughs> he's controlling he, it all. I, I think he's since passed on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. It's, a, it's amazing it, some of the history. Yeah, 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 you know, lots of history down there. Yeah, and I know you do a presentation. I think you got a, you got one coming up one soon. Coming but up. Yes. Um, we're going to actually have a, have a couple nights here at the studio where you're going to present. Correct. You know, we'd like to you know bring law enforcement or people in the community that want to know a little bit about that. So we'll sure. post we'll post that up when it's sure. available. Yeah. Uh, I and I and I've watched this presentation. It's like amazing. It's like so to to, to think that you know you have airplanes landing on streets that are so busy right now, you know, Everglades Boulevard, yeah. you know, oh, DeSoto, yeah. 41, you know, just to see the history of Collier County and, and, you know, what it was about. It was like you said, I think you told me today, it was like the wild, wild west. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, we were always gone. I mean, we, we, we covered the whole Caribbean uh, all the way down to South America. I mean, there were times when, when we would go to the islands and set up on the islands uh, as, as offloaders, and we would send boats out to pick up loads. Uh, I know we we took trips down. One trip we took down, we were on the uh, Cayman Islands for 10 days. We had an airplane and, and boats, and we were talking to the Colombian uh, importers, and we would send the boats out to pick the load up and bring it unloaded off the west coast of Florida. Unbelievable. That's why you got so much muscles. Yeah. You know, all those bales back in the yeah. day. Yeah. yeah, no, it's amazing. Amazing stories. Tom, I'd like to thank you, you know, just amazing, amazing stuff, what you did in law enforcement. And, and I think probably it kind of formed and basically cultivated Collier County. And probably if you guys didn't do what you did back then, things would probably look a little bit different in this I county. I think they would be a lot different. You know, in this county. you yeah. know, you know, it was hard work. I, I think it was justified. And it, it probably in, in the long run has, has turned some folks around. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's been great. Good to have you in. Anytime you want to come in, fifty years of law enforcement, forty nine and a half almost. And <laughs> yeah. uh, are you gonna are you gonna do it again? You think or you, no. you know? Because I know no. No. Tom's a great weather person, very knowledgeable. Been in law enforcement, knows every layer of law. Enforcement. Yeah. Well, I got you. How has law enforcement changed? I mean, we just got done oh. about a year ago, and yeah, compared to what you did uh, back in the day, what you know? How's well, that you know, when I first came on. This, this is interesting. First, I came on in the department full-time in 1972, as I told you. No assigned cars. The same car was on the road 24-7. No portable radios. Uh, no, no, we, no benefits other than you know insurance. We had to pay uh, 8% of our salary towards retirement. Uh, no overtime. If you stayed, like, joking 311, 
and the 11 to 7 shift was short, a man or two, and they asked you to stay over, and you'd stay over till 3, 4 o'clock till all the bars shut down, and, you know, things started quieting down. You didn't get paid for that. We, your, we, no, we were happy to duty. do it. Yeah, yeah your duty. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we were happy to do it. And I worked canine back in those days, so I worked 6 at night till 2 in the morning, and I can tell you many nights I'd stay out till 7 o'clock until the day shift would take over just because everybody was busy, and I was the only dog out. I was on call 24-7 back in the 70s, around 73. Uh, when I was assigned canine, I had the only shepherd out on the street. Amazing stories. And, and you know, if you look over over the years, uh, the technology, you know, look inside one of these cars. The technology will floor you. It's almost like the cockpit of an airplane. You got, you got your laptop, you got your camera, you got your, your body cams, you, you've got all kinds driver's of Driver's license readers. Oh, yeah, you got driver's license, you got the printer, yeah. you got all that stuff. Back in those days, we, we had a shotgun and a Motorola Motrack radio, and that was it. <laughs> and a, two tin cans of the string. Yeah, and sometimes that didn't work. <laughs> there were parts in the county, if you got out close to the Miami-Dade line on 41, you couldn't talk. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. I remember when I started out in the Marine Patrol, the dispatch was in Tampa after 5. Yes. And there was they would page you so you can go to a cell phone. And call to talk. Not a cell phone, hardly. It was basically, a, you know, you kept coins. Yeah. And... Uh, to think of that safety situation back oh. then, it was crazy. And we're, you know, as you know, we've always had single man cars. Yeah. Well, great information, Tom. Again, you, Captain Tom Store, yeah. uh, retired, but, you know, the guy's always ready. He's always ready. It's good. All right, 239, uncensored everything, Southwest Florida and beyond. Thank you so much. We always do a little fist bump, and we are out. Thanks a lot, Tom. Great having you on. Please make sure to download and listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to like and share on social media. This has been a Studio 239 production. That was fun.